podcast in the galaxy. The Easy Yeezy Show. Hello and welcome back to the Elise Yeezy Show. I'm your host, Elise Yeezy, and today I'm joined by paranormal and UFO researcher, Christina Gomez. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing so well. How about yourself? Very good. All hectic over here. I'm always very disorganized. That's no surprise to anyone member of my audience. Very disorganized, but other than that, all good. Thank you. I completely know the feeling. I, I'm My life is just insane. I do four shows a week on my channel. I'm a full-time student, have a full-time job as well. And then I also create TikToks. Um, I try to every single day. And I also manage other people's TikToks as well. So um, it's crazy. I do have insomnia. So that's how I'm able to manage all of that. But uh, when it comes to being hectic, Elise, I completely feel that 100%. <laughs> How do you find the time to do four shows, manage all of the, and manage other people's TikToks? I wouldn't be able to do that. It's uh, difficult, but I literally have a schedule like per hour um, of how to do my my day-to-day thing so that I can do as much as possible throughout the day. But also I, I sleep very little. I have very few hours of sleep. So I definitely make sure to buy like really good concealer under my eyes to like really <laughs> cover the sleepiness. But um, aside from that, it's also just a lot of dedication. I love talking about and researching the paranormal and the UFO phenomenon. And when you have that drive, when you have that passion, it makes the work that much easier. And it's more of a fun pastime, which it's not. It's a full-time gig, but it feels that way because I'm so passionate about the mysteries of our world and of our universe. Let's dive into that. What first compelled you to get into the mysteries of UFOs, paranormal experiences, etc.? Did you experience something? Like how, roughly how old were you? So I got started in all of this at a very young age. My father was a huge fan of The Twilight Zone. It's a TV show from the early 50s, you know, into the, sorry, late 50s into the early 60s. It was still black and white. And the topics that were spoken about from Rod Sterling, who is like, I'm his biggest fan on the planet, but he created these beautiful imaginative topics that at that time were incredibly taboo looking and and making you think outside of the box, but looking at the paranormal aliens, UFOs as well, cryptids of some sort. And that's kind of what got me on the journey um, of all of this was just being exposed to it at such a young age. My father and I used to watch the sci-fi channel on New Year's and they would play the Twilight Zone for 48 hours. So we would try to like stay up for those two days, which was practically impossible, obviously, when you're a child, but eat pizza, popcorn, ice cream, you know, have have that family bonding time. And so those TV shows have a very special place in my heart, but it also got me to where I am today. And then um, actually, when I had entered university, I have a pretty funny story I would like to share. So in university, my very first year, I I'm still in university. I was broke as, as could be right. You don't have money when you're uh, in college and I didn't have enough money to buy a vacuum. So I was actually talking to this girl that was sitting next to me in one of my classes and she was there for a few years. And I said, Hey, do you mind if I can just like casually borrow your vacuum for the day? Like I'm going to return it. I promise, but can I just borrow it until I get paid? And she's like, yeah, no, don't even worry about it. No problem. Come to my house, my, my apartment later tonight, and I'll give it to you. And I'm like, yes, sweet. 
So, um, I, uh, finished my courses. I drive to her place and something already fell off. Now at this time, just a few years ago, even though I've always been interested in the phenomenon, have it be everything mysterious, it wasn't to the extent that I am today. So I wasn't really knowledgeable in the fields doing extensive research. And I definitely did not believe in gut feelings. I was like, there's no science behind that because when I first started, I was purely nuts and bolts, meaning everything needs to be physical, tangible with data behind it. Gut feelings, that's not the case. So I'm like, as soon as I was getting to her place, I parked the car, I'm walking to her door and I'm already having this bad feeling. And I'm thinking, ah, whatever, <laughs> what, what do I know? I'm, I'm obviously wild. Then I get to her place, we chat for a bit and I take her vacuum and I put it in the trunk of my car and I'm driving back to my dorm apartment. And I'm like, I feel, I feel like something's behind me. Like something's with me. Nah, it can't be. There's nothing here. <laughs> what are you talking about? There's nothing here. So I keep driving. I keep driving, but I keep having this ominous feeling. Um, since I put the vacuum in the car, I take it home. I, I do a few things around the place before I go ahead and vacuum the whole apartment and return it the next day. And I used to have this really big candle in the bathroom. It, it was like pretty big and it had a glass container. It was in a glass container and I put it right on top of the toilet and um, it just looked nice at the time. I didn't, never actually like, lighted it or anything. But when I was walking throughout my apartment, um, the candle, this thing is huge. It's heavy. It falls into the trash can. And I'm thinking it doesn't even make, that doesn't even make sense. So I go back and put it back. Okay, whatever. There was no earthquakes. There was no weather anomalies to create something like that. Then keep doing what I'm doing. It happens again. And I'm thinking, is there a ghost or a demon in my house? There's no way. But TV told me if anything like this happens, grab the salt from your kitchen, put it everywhere, and you will be protected and safe. Hmm. Right. My television knowledge was incredibly limited. Once again, I was not researching the field. I literally knew nothing. So I grab the salt from the kitchen. I sprinkle it in the candle, I sprinkle it on the front door. And I'm like, hi, demons. What can you do? You can't, you can't beat me. I was wrong, actually. Um, I end up, it, it just got more weird. The candle kept falling. I felt like there was something in the apartment with me. And uh, at this time I was living alone. I had a cat, but that was it. And even the cat never like jumped on the toilet or anything or played with that candle. And so I, I'm like, okay, Google, Google, help me out. Music or tunes that will move demonic entity. And I press play and it plays this music. And then I hear this screeching sound coming through the speakers. Obviously a screeching sound is not part of the playlist that I went ahead and played. And I was like, I look at the vacuum and I said, hey, I'm going to take you back home tonight. I do not want you with me. I call the girl and I'm like, hey, can I return your vacuum? She's like, no, no, it's fine. It's fine. Just keep it until the next day. Don't even worry about it. And I'm like, please, I know it's late, but let me, please let me just return your vacuum. She's like, no, 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 just tomorrow. So I end up putting the vacuum in a storage unit, like right outside of the apartment. And I'm like, you're going to stay there. I'm going to have a good night's sleep. You are not going to bother me. And I'm going to return you back to your owner. And that's kind of the story of one of the stories that kind of got me started looking into the paranormal and all of this strange stuff, because it happened 
to me. And I had spoken to the story a few times to some other people and they had told me maybe it was like a type of hitchhiker where you had an entity attached to this vacuum and it followed you home. But after you returned the vacuum, it returned back to its owner. Ever since then, I've never spoken to that girl after. Did you tell her that her vacuum was haunted? No, I did (laughs) not because um, it was, it was already a weird situation there when I had spoken to her, when I had received the vacuum and when I had returned it, it seemed like the entire environment, it just kind of shifted and it was really bizarre. I've never experienced thing, experienced anything like that since, um, ever. So after that moment, I'm like, I don't know what to say to you. I'm just going to walk away. And once again, this is before I did the research. And if that were to happen once again, I would have approached it completely different. I would have documented everything. Mm -hmm. I would have had my camera. I would have had a notebook. I would have done everything that I possibly could and spoken to her as well in great detail, but that wasn't the case at the time. So that was just one thing that really got me started into all of this. What do you think it was? What do you think was going on with it? At that time, uh, once again, I was purely nuts and bolts. That was my mentality. Now that has changed um, over the years doing extensive research. There seems to be a lot of interconnections between the UFO phenomenon, the paranormal, and even spirituality as well. But when I had first started, I'm just like, this is crazy. The only knowledge that I have of this is from like ghost hunters, ghost adventures. Like that's it. I know nothing about this. So I didn't really know what was going on, but the, the place felt different. It felt heavier. It was, uh, I was scared obviously. Cause I wasn't, I didn't know what was going on, but looking back at that encounter, it is difficult to say, could it have been a hitchhiker? Could it have been a type of demonic entity? Could it have merely just been a ghost that was attached to that object for whatever reason? I don't know, but it is something that I still think about. And then I would like the answers for, but my story is not unique. This is a consistent theme that has happened to so many people across the globe. Stories that I have been told personally, those that have been told on my show, Shifting the Paradigm, and those that I've even read while doing my research. This isn't anything new. I'm not special in any way, but because it affected me personally, it, that story and that experience is always going to stick with me. It's funny that you mentioned the Twilight Zone. I just have to add this in for my audience because I was recently in Disneyland Paris and they have this like Walt Disney Studios section of the park and they had this ride called the Tower of Terror and it's Twilight <sighs> Zone themed it's it's inspired from a twilight zone episode and i've never seen any of the original twilight zones but they're on amazon so i might actually check them out um other streaming sites are available i don't know why i always mention amazon i went on this tower of terror ride and it is the worst i I like roller coasters but this is the worst thing i've ever been on you're 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 in this elevator room and you sit on the seat and you have a seat belt and it and it's on this pulley system and you plummet. But as you plummet, it's actually pushing you. It's not just gravity, it's pushing you. So you're free, you're falling faster than you would if you were free falling. And it's the scariest thing I've ever been on in my life. So I'm not sure if I'd like to watch the Twilight Zone now. <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's, it's really fantastic. But yeah, when it comes to roller coasters and when you're practically free falling, yeah, you you feel your soul exit your body. <laughs> like for, forget having near-death experiences going on a roller coaster is a near-death experience that was the worst experience i've ever had on a on a roller coaster like loop the loops going upside down whatever i'm fine but that the, the drop the free fall the being pulled up and down it was ugh, 
I, I feel like it's mildly traumatized me. I was trying to go to sleep the other night and I just kept thinking of the feeling of it like rising in horrible. So I just had to interject with that. Um, so you had this experience. Actually, no, you said about gut feelings. I kind of think, and I think this is maybe a mildly pseudoscience view of gut feelings. I feel like, because I've had gut feelings before, a hunch that I've got bad vibes from this area or this place or this person or whatever. I think it's your body is subconsciously picking up on signals of danger and is, and is warning you. I don't know if that's a pseudoscience view of gut feelings though. I think they can be root. They're not just hunches. I think they can be rooted in hmm, something more tangible. You know, it is, it is something that has been documented for centuries in the sense of like people feeling gut feelings, being told something of, I didn't know where that source was from. It has been researched by psychologists and psychiatrists as well, but not to the, I don't want to say not to the extent, but it's just not public knowledge. The mainstream media and things like this, they just don't cover this kind of information because in a sense, mm-hmm. it is still kind of pseudoscience, but it's not because there has been research on it. I didn't know that until starting doing the research into all of this, because with the work that I do, I started off with the UFO phenomenon. Mm. And then while I kept researching, speaking to more people, interviewing more people, I began to realize that it creeps in with the paranormal and also creeps in with your basic psychology as well. And it it can also creep into the more spiritual aspects in some respects. I haven't gotten to that spiritual aspect yet. I'm still kind of more in the science and the historical side of it. But what's really interesting, this is a question that I constantly ask everyone that I speak to is, Do you believe there is a convergence between the UFO phenomenon and the paranormal? And the more researchers that I've spoken to, ufologists and paranormal investigators, and even those that are just kind of like bystanders, they're just watching the whole thing unfold. They have stated that, yes, I I think that is the case. A really good example of this is Skinwalker Ranch in Utah. Mm. Skinwalker Ranch is this location where you have UFO sightings, you have shadow people and poltergeists. You have cryptids as well. We can get into detail on that. And then you have just weird anomalies that don't happen anywhere else or that aren't necessarily naturally occurring in other parts of Utah. Why is that? Well, it's believed that Skinwalker Ranch in Utah in the United States is a this type of hotspot, this type of magnet that just, that just attracts all of these weird things. And there has been research on this location way before the TV show. And the first family that kind of made it public that they were having weird experiences were the Shermans. And the story goes, and these are alleged accounts, meaning we don't know if they're true, but they have told the public these stories that were later documented by George Knapp, a very famous journalist. So the story goes that the Shermans had just bought this property, a bunch of land, they bought cattle, things like this. And one night or one day, um, there was this huge, ginormous wolf walking down, looking at, looking at some baby calves, right? Some calves. And the, uh, Mr. Sherman was like, obviously I can't have this wolf eat my cows. And this thing was huge. He actually described it as being a dire wolf. Dire wolves are extinct. They no longer exist. And so he 
um, I think the first part is like kind of shoes it off, right? He kind of shoes it off. He calls his son in. His son gets a bat and hits it. Nothing happens. They get the shotgun. They shoot it. It doesn't bleed. It doesn't flinch. That is incredibly rare. Now with bears, kind of like one of the biggest type of animals, it takes a few shots to kill it. But with each shot, it flinches. It bleeds. It feels the pain. That wasn't the case with this dire wolf. They shoot it a few times. They hit it. They do all these things. I try to shoo it away. Nothing really worked until one moment the wolf kind of just casually walks away. He's like, oh, okay, that's fine. I'm just going to peace out. And that's just one of many stories that they've had. They've also locked their cabinets in the in their house because sometimes when they leave the all of the plates are on the floor the cabinets are open and closing at weird times of the day and of the night so they had to actually lock all their cabinets and after they had sold their ranch they're like we can't handle this this is too terrifying too many things have happened They've also saw portals, they saw cryptids, they saw Bigfoot, things like this. Robert Bigelow, the owner of Bigelow Airspace and big and owner of one of the um, hotel chains in the United States, he buys the ranch. He throws in millions of dollars to do extensive research. A lot of that research is still under wraps. That information is not public, but there are a few people that have come on the record or also some allegedly that have come on the record that have stated that when they were doing tests, such as scientists, they saw portals open and close. They saw weird creatures coming in and out. There was this one portal that they saw and they saw a different environment on the other side. And these are really wild stories. They're so wild that, that they can be hard to believe. And I respect that. Then Brandon Fugel buys the ranch and all of his research is completely public. He created the show, The Secret of Skinwalker Ranch. He brought in a bunch of experienced scientists and others to come in and join his team and to do research. Now, people think that his TV show is completely fabricated. I've spoken to him personally and members of his team, and they have reassured me that everything that happens happens. There, there is nothing that is fabricated for the TV show. If anything, they want to keep it a hundred percent natural. They're not told to say anything. They, they do the experiments that they've done extensive research on that they think would work. And then the production company does what they want. And then they kind of put it out there, but something really odd is happening at Skinwalker Ranch. But there are hotspots like this across the globe. It's not just there. You also have Bradshaw Ranch in Sedona, Arizona. Very, very similar. You have another one in Massachusetts called the Bridgewater Triangle where you get puck wedgies. Puck wedgies are the cutest thing, the name ever, but they're actually like these evil goblin creatures <laughs> that the natives have told stories for generations. Mm. But you also, and it's not just the United States, you're having these hotspots across the globe, Japan, the UK, parts of um, South America as well. Now, it's Skinwalker Ranch that is getting all that attention, that is getting all that scientific research. But if more people know about these hotspots, it won't be a question of, oh, what are you talking about? It's going to be a question of, tell me more. I want to know more. What happens? How did this happen? So the world is incredibly mysterious. And that's what I want to look for is to get my generation, Gen Z, those in their 20s, 30s, and a little bit younger to get them involved because they 
We are our future. They're going to be our future lawyers, politicians, doctors. And if they know this information, not only does it make life a little bit easier for them because it makes it makes them makes their problems a little bit less significant, but also they will able they will be able to do that extensive research the older they get. So these hotspots are showing a new mystery, the convergence of UFOs with the paranormal phenomenon. It's it's truly unbelievable. You said there's a hotspot in the UK. Do you know whereabouts? Not specifically, just because there hasn't been extensive research. Mm-hmm. However, there have been quite a few very interesting UFO sightings in the UK. The most famous one being the Rendlesham Forest incident. And there's another one called the Penturk incident as well that was kind of more recent. And there was a book written actually by the witness. Her name is Kaz and her last name is escaping me at the moment. But Every single country that I have done research on so far, none of them are are exclusive in the sense of they all have UFO sightings. They all have these weird paranormal encounters. Some even encourage cryptids. And I often wonder in a century, will, um, will what we call paranormal now, right, be classified as normal with the march of technology, theoretical physics, and and the studies of possibility of, of hidden dimensions by mainstream science. And if so, imagine if the UFOs are piloted by a non-human intelligence. They are more advanced than us. Therefore, their science would be like magic to us. But that's not the case. It's science. Did you see, I'm very sure, I'm not sure if I dreamt this or imagined this because I'm sure people spoke about this for a day and then everyone promptly forgot it. I am very sure that the Pentagon recently, as in the last two or so years, said that they had a UFO, not of earthly origins. They, they admitted it in some sort of report and I swear people spoke about it for one day and then everyone forgot. Did I imagine that or did I skip like from a different world line where that was the case? <laughs> Something somewhat similar, but not the exact case. The government has not publicly mentioned that they have a um, UF, an entity, an extraterrestrial, or a craft. However, two years ago, they did release a UFO preliminary report released by the UAPTF, which is the Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon Task Force. Now that name changed to AOYMSG. That acronym is incredibly long. I'm not even going to say it. And then that name changed once again just recently. But in that report, it was only eight pages. It was really disappointing for the UFO field, those that are interested in the topic. Mm -hmm. But for everyone else, they're like, oh, yeah, I don't care. But pretty much what it was stating was out of the 144 cases looked into of seeing just weird anomalies in the sky, only one was solved out of all of those. Mm -hmm. Let me let me get into detail on that, what that means. Out of the 144 UFOs, Okay, meaning unidentified flying objects. You don't know what they are, but they're not weather balloons. They're not drones. They're not any of these things that people kind of brush them off as. None of those, except for one, was identified at that time when they were doing research onto that. A new report is actually going to be coming out, hopefully um, October 31st. We don't know, but we 
we have been supposed to be getting UFO reports every six months. So this next one should be coming out soon. People in the field will be dissecting it word for word to understand what exactly is going on. Because when you're dealing with the government in any country, but looking specifically at the United States, they're not going to use the term alien. They're not going to use the term UFO. Now it is UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. So it's really interesting to see that the United States government is now kind of, in a sense, talking about this publicly. We just had congressional hearings of May of uh, last year, I believe, or no, May of this year, where you had two men come in and very vaguely disclose um, the research that they're doing with um, UFOs. They showed some videos to Congress. This is a really, really big deal. And there were two meetings, one public and one private. We are, we are hoping to get more with actual witnesses this time, people that have encountered UFOs, those also with a pretty high status, usually in the military. Now, we are not too sure who's going to be on trial, and that's in quotation marks, meaning um, what witnesses are going to speak to Congress, but we will be receiving another report on the research that they have been doing, but there has not been confirmation by the government that they are in possession of a body or a craft. Hmm. What do you think about when politicians from various countries or people from the military kind of leave little hints around? Because I'm very sure that the former minister of defense or secretary of defense in canada came out and said ufos the quote was ufos are um they're as real as the space above your head or something it was something like that but it seems that plenty of military officials have come out and confirmed that they believe in the existence and i would think you know with the air force we do have we don't have to rely just on anecdotal eyewitness evidence do we we do have radar evidence of ufos don't we i'd assume that would be the case it would appear it would appear on radar so that there's there's more tangible things there not that i don't love an eyewitness account i do but for people who want things to be a bit more solid that's a great question when you're looking at radar there are some alleged accounts of being caught. There actually is one from the USS Omaha that was released in, in 2019. But for the most part, from my understanding and my research, a lot of the UFOs that have been seen with the naked eye have actually not been caught on radar. Do they have a type of stealth technology? Is it ours? Is it theirs? Meaning, is it the governments or is it extraterrestrial? We don't know. And that's a really big debate that is constantly happening in the UFO field, meaning are the things that we're seeing, are they just a black project that we're creating here, possibly reverse engineered, or is it really extraterrestrial? Those are really, really difficult questions to answer. But when we're looking at radar, there's just very few pieces that are publicly available for people to look at. And if you don't know how to read a radar, it just looks like blobs, really, just like little dots here and there. And you don't understand the significance of it. But for the most part, once again, from my research, a lot of the UFOs that are seen are not caught on radar. And how do you how do you go about researching topics? Because from what you've said to me, you like to keep more of a scientific approach to things. So how does one go about doing that? 
the first step is just looking at the basic story, whatever case you want to look at. Here's a really good example. And I'll tell you my favorite UFO story. That's also a bit spooky. And I think it's very appropriate for the spooky season. Yes. It is Colaris, Brazil in 1977. This story is probably one in a trillion from the hundreds of cases that I've looked into. It is incredibly rare. And when I'm saying incredibly, I mean, incredibly rare for craft to show up not once, not twice, but for six months straight, every single night between 7 and 8 p.m., terrorizing the town in Calaris, Brazil, hurting them, creating puncture wounds in their necks, in their thighs, and in their chest, and killing two. You will not come across a story like this one. And it sounds so crazy, but there's actually tangible evidence to back up these stories. So let me get into this encounter. First, let me get into the encounter, but also how I did the research for it. Mm-hmm. So I came across this um, just kind of randomly in one of the books I was reading, doing a doing research for a completely another case. And that's usually how my research goes. And I was reading this and I'm thinking, this is crazy. There's no way. This is just one book. Let me actually look up online this case and see how many other sources there are. Tons of sources on this story. Even a FOIA report, meaning a Freedom of Information Act released by the Brazilian government, having collected hundreds of witness testimonies, drawings, photographs of these craft and no video but the government the brazilian government had mentioned that they do have video of the craft it's just not made public that's already crazy i'm thinking okay this has a little bit of legitimacy to it to where the brazilian government is actually stating yes this this happened here is the information but you're only gonna get a little bit of it you're not gonna get that much but just enough i'm like Hey, I'll take it. I'll take it. So what the story contains is for a few months before we get to the six month mark for about one to two months, this small fishing town is seeing these craft come every single night. They would shine a beam of light on these people and it would paralyze them. It would create three puncture wounds for the men in the jugular area, for the women in the chest. Of course, you do have some cases in the thighs as well. And they were so mortified because they they couldn't walk out at night. They had to huddle up in groups to go anywhere. So many of the town people allegedly would sleep together in the same house. But these beams of light would also shine through the walls, through the roofs, through the door, through the windows, nobody was safe. They were terrified. We do need to keep in mind that during this time period in this town, they uh, were they had a very Catholic mentality. That is the predominant religion in Brazil. And so they thought it was somewhat demonic. And they actually called this craft and these, these beams of light, chupa chupa, which means sucker sucker, because they believed that blood was being taken out of them from these beams of light. So they're all yelling to the mayor and they're like, mayor, you have to do something about this. Nobody is safe here. So what does he do? What does he do? He calls the capital Brasilia and he's like, hey, 
Brasilia. I need a military stat. Bring, bring all your weapons and save my people. The military come. By this time, it was called Operation Saucer, Aparecial Plato. They come in, but they weren't carrying guns, cannons, tanks. Nah, they were carrying pencils, papers, cameras, and that those were their weapons. Everyone in the town is like, are you going to protect us or document us? What is going on here? And so then for a few months afterward, they're merely just documenting. There's only one clinic. There's, there was only one clinic in that town run by a female doctor by the name of Dr. Um, Calvaro, I believe. And when she was getting these patients coming in with literally mass hysteria, she's like, nah, UFOs aren't real. This is literally just mass hysteria. It's contagious of some kind. I don't believe it. Then she had her own encounter. She saw a craft. It, show, it shined on her. She paralyzed. She began to believe her patients. The military come in. They walk into her clinic and they state, look, you're going to tell everyone it's mass hysteria. No one's seeing UFOs. Everything is fine. She did an interview um, stating all of this. This information is public through FOIA. You can find it and also literally any book that covers the Kolaris um, incident. So she goes on the record telling her whole story of the military coming in, telling her, nope, this didn't happen. Just tell everyone something else. And because she had already had an experience, she was like, I can't do that to my patients. They're, that's not honest. I can't diagnose them with something that isn't true. So the military, they walk off, they continue doing their research. Um, their drawings and some of their photos are public. You are able to see them. And you, then you had the captain of the operation. This is where the story gets really wild. The captain, his name is Urange Lima. And he did not speak for 20 years. He kept his story completely quiet. Then in 1997, literally 20 years after, he speaks to UFO magazine of Brazil. He speaks to ufologists in Brazil, the most famous ones of all time there. And he lays out his story. And he says, everything that happened in 1997, 1977, it happened. Not only do I have documentation, but I experienced it not once, multiple times. I saw craft. I saw my men terrorized. But I also had a very close encounter with an extraterrestrial. Let me tell the story. One night I was laying in bed and this small entity, he said it was about two meters tall, wearing a silver suit, but not incredibly tight and a helmet came from him, uh, came to him from behind and said in his ear in a very robotic voice, but in somewhat broken Portuguese, we're not here to harm you. Just relax. And then from there, obviously this captain is like, terrified seeing this tiny little being he showed up out of nowhere there was this beam of light and then bam this entity comes along and he says don't worry about it nah just 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 do your thing really but it was robotic and and in broken portuguese keep in mind this is a military official right they're very nuts and bolts they need the information they need the data and they're definitely not going to report anything that makes them look crazy that's why he didn't tell a story for 20 years two months after he tells the story, 
he allegedly commits suicide. Mm. This is a common theme in the research that I have done. Some people come out usually pretty high on the, on the ladder. They tell their story a little while afterward. They're no longer living. People state, oh, they had mental health issues. They were very depressed. But interviews of people close to them had mentioned, no, they were really happy. They're really happy with life. They were, they were living, they were living it to their full potential. There is no way they would have committed suicide. And also with these, um, some of these cases, it's just a bit wild on, on how they're able to, to do something like that. But this story is so extreme. And even two people died with this beam of light. They were paralyzed. They had to be taken to the nearest town that had a bigger hospital. And they died within the next few days. The, uh, the um, doctor asked for a death certificate to understand how they passed. And it was left unknown. And or she wasn't even able to receive those death certificates. They became classified. There is no plausible explanation for a death certificate from someone from her town to where she would be denied access to those, right? It's, it's, that's a dangerous to not have that information. So that is one of my favorite and most crazy stories that it's a one in a billion story. Is it, hmm. This entity said that they weren't here to hurt anyone, but these people were, they felt that they were being terrorized. Do you feel that they were being a bit malevolent? They must have known, surely, the stress that the townspeople were being put under. Uh, what, what do you think was going on there? Well, this entity had mentioned that he's not going to hurt the captain. And the captain was left unharmed. However, in his interview that he that he was in in 1997, there was actually this really odd object inside of his skin. And you would possibly classify that as a probe. He has x-rays of it. And it he doesn't remember ever going into the hospital and getting something in his arm. But it happened after sometime after this incident. So when this entity had said, we're not here to harm you, that might have just been the case for him, for everyone else. They, they were mortified. They were being hurt every single day. Two of their town people died. And this is a small town. So everyone practically knows everyone. If you walk through that town today, allegedly, no one's going to talk to you about the story. No one, no one wants to get involved because it is a belief that maybe that if they talk about it, they'll bring these entities back to terrorize them once again. So as to your question, it is in, in the testimonies, they do seem malevolent. And for the most part, people that have UFO encounters or experiences, they're usually either benign, right? Or they're like these, these high entities that are just here to help you and help with all these things and blah, blah, blah. So you're, you're getting, you're getting two visions, two perspectives of extraterrestrials. Are they good? Are they bad? I think it just depends on the story and the location. Now, UFO sightings are often, you know, very often have many other strange mysteries attached to them. And this brings up another um, interest of mine. So we keep hearing about kind of like bundled dimensions or the 
extra 11, uh, 11 dimensions that physicists say should exist as a result of the study of quantum mechanics. Mm-hmm. But what are these dimensions, these, these, um, these realms, okay? Places like Skinwalker Ranch in Utah, the Bridgewater Triangle in Massachusetts, and a, a host of other places <clears throat> globally, portals are being observed and reported. So even it, it even happened um, under scientific surveillance on Skinwalker Ranch while government sponsored with a government sponsored study it took place there under Robert Bigelow's ownership that I had mentioned a little bit earlier. But, you know, my my interest is in the mentions of such things in ancient writings from India, China and the Middle East and also kind of like ancient religious texts. What did our ancestors know about these things? The existence of other dimensions, the the um, and and like sentient beings in them is is in the it's, this is in like the Vedic works of India and the Taoist works of Asia and many other sources. Non-human intelligences and other entities are part of those writings like be be it the um the jinn entities demons spirits immortals and even like strange beings from distant realities i've talked to students and researchers of these works and they are they're more open to the idea of the paranormal ufo's other dimensions and and non-human intelligences than most people would believe so i'm i'm so i'm so curious as to how has to how modern theoretical physics and uh, quantum theory appears to be catching up with stories and ancient knowledge from past epochs of time so you know it's it's a rabbit hole for sure, but there's something there. So many, so many smoking guns and just taking the time to dig into these mysteries. It really does open up one's mind to incredible possibilities. I mean, we, we all at one time or another ask ourselves, why am I here? Where did I come from? Is there life after death? And are we alone in the universe? It it sure does, um, you know, make life pretty interesting rather than just keeping your mind on the daily schedule of work, eat, watch TV, sleep, repeat, right? So that's where I am right now. My interest in UFOs has brought me to look in, deeply into many other mysteries and I'm seeing so many links and convergences so it's like just on the edge of our vision and as as a species we see we we are seeing glimpses of something bigger and I think that is where where we all like where we mature as a civilization looking out there rather than than being hypnotized by entertainment culture and the hype hype sensationalism of the media so i've got i've got questions i want answers and i am journaling my adventure on my youtube channel and radio show on KUNX talk radio because i want to know do you think there will be 
disclosure anytime soon within the next 10 years or or even 20 years or so? This is a question that has been asked across the platform, but especially with, with younger minds such as ourselves. We are aware that there is going to be missions to Mars pretty soon. There is going to be missions once again to the moon. They actually want to colonize the moon. This is the, this is the purpose of the Artemis mission run by NASA. And when you are exploring space, I think you need to have a basic understanding or even an open mind to these possibilities. Who are going to be on those craft, those, those rockets? People somewhat-ish in our generation. Those that are already open-minded to these possibilities, that there's no possible way that we're alone in the universe. We've heard this a million, trillion, gazillion times that it makes me almost roll my eyes, but it's true. And so I think, and this is merely my opinion, I think it is very possible that in the next 10, 20 years, possibly, we might get the answers that we're looking for. However, every single person has a different description of what disclosure means. Some think disclosure is going to come from the government when they state aliens, guys aliens. But then others think that it's going to have, it's going to be a sighting that they're going to have themselves. Others think it might be a mass sighting. Everyone has a different description of what disclosure means. And I think that the one that would probably work the best that would get the most people involved would be another mass sighting, such as the Phoenix lights that happened in the 1990s. But at an even bigger scale, and we've seen movies like this, um, where you've had multiple craft coming down across the globe, people are scared at first, and then they just take it as a fact of life. I think that would be the same thing if it happened in our reality as well. Have you ever seen the film They Live? Oh my gosh, John, yes. John of course. Yeah. So good. Great film, great film. Hmm. Are you familiar with... You must be familiar with uh, Stephen Greer, Dr. Stephen Greer. Yes. And his, he has the documentary, Unacknowledged, and he has, doesn't he have some sort of a committee where it's, where it's the people wanting to make contact or not leaving up to the government or governing official bodies because, well, I don't know about you guys, but the government in the UK is a state. And if, like, I don't really want my government, if aliens were to contact tomorrow, I wouldn't feel comfortable with my government representing England. Um, yeah, are you familiar with like Stephen Greer's work in that aspect? Yes. So Stephen Greer is best known for two things. One, his CE5 sessions, which is going into a meditative state and getting into communication with extraterrestrials. He's also known for his disclosure movement in the early 2000s, where he brought in a lot of military officials, those of credibility, witnesses as well, and talking about their experiences and also the science behind it. Now, his it has shifted over the decades from going to like pure nuts and bolts into his spiritual aspect. I would like to mention that CE5 is nothing new. It's actually an ancient teaching taught in India where you go into a meditative state and you are able to um, interact, have it be extraterrestrials, have it be other entities in a different dimension. It could be what you would classify as angels or um, advanced entities of some kind that could help guide you, things like this. So Stephen Greer has not created anything new. However, he did publicize it and he did 
monetize it. When it comes to CE5, this is another question that I do ask a lot of people. What are your thoughts on it? Do you do it? Have you ever done it before? Do you just reject it altogether? And it's a it's a pretty mixed bag. Some state, yeah, I've done it. It's just another meditative session. Other state, I want nothing to do with it because you don't know what you're inviting in a sense, what someone classify as like a Ouija board. Mm -hmm. However, when you are doing a meditation and you have thoughts of, you know, light and things like this, you know, whatever, it's all about the intention. Um, When it comes to these sessions, you're able to attract things that your mind wants you to attract. So it's, it's very um, convoluted. It's very difficult conversation for those that haven't practiced it or haven't researched it. I have not practiced CE5 because once again, I am kind of more of the nuts and bolts aspect. And if I were to have a C, do a CE5 and I see an extraterrestrial, what next? Do I grab up my phone? Am I allowed to record them? Do I need to ask permission? Uh, things like this. And while I'm being a little bit facetious here, kind of joking with you, th- these are in a sense questions that we do need to ask ourselves. What is the purpose to why we are conducting th- these things? Is it for entertainment? Is it for spiritual enlightenment? Is it for understanding the phenomenon? It it differs from person to person, but entertainment should be the last one on your list. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Have you ever tried um, astral projecting? Have you you ever attempted that kind of stuff? Because I tried as a teenager, I got really into astral projecting, uh, lucid dreaming, this this type of thing, falling asleep while still conscious. I managed to do that a few times. Um, Yeah, I, I attempted to do astral projecting didn't work but astral projecting is a very interesting conversation and one that I have done research on and it is on my show uh, on YouTube and, and podcast form platforms but when it comes to astral projection for those that aren't familiar with it it's when you're in a almost a sleep state your body is asleep but your spirit or your essence or your, even your consciousness depending on what you want to call it is awake and it's able to travel the ether, not just here on earth, but across the universe and possibly even other places that we aren't familiar with and, or we don't have the English language to describe it. Have I tried it? Of course. When I was doing the research, I'm like, I want to travel the world. I want to go to Egypt. Why not? Let You know what? Let's go to the moon. Um, however, I have never been successful to doing astral projection. I have been in communication with others that have stated that they have been successful. It's because when you go into sleep, you can't be fully tired. You have to kind of get into a meditative state. And while the body is asleep, your mind is still awake. And then from there, apparently you're able to kind of like wiggle out of your body. You feel this vibration and then poof, you're out. However, if you are scared and you shock yourself, you're going to end up back into the body. There are theories and or myths that your spiritual body, your conscious body is attached to your physical body with a silver thread. If an evil entity comes along and they see your silver thread, they'll snip it and then you'll die forever. Uh, These are actually myths from the research that I have done and the scientists that I've also spoken to that have done research into this and doctors as well. While there might be a silver cord that can just very faintly be seen in the sense of like, it looks like a little spaghetti string or like a a spider web. Um, It is 
indestructible. There's nothing that can actually cut it and hurt you and kill you while you're away from your body. No entity can come into your body and possess it while you're gone. These are myths, once again, from the research that I have done. People can tell you otherwise, and I am not here to make you believe me in anything that I'm saying. If anything, I hope it inspires your listeners to do the research themselves and to come up with their own conclusions on what's going on here. I have done the research. I have looked into it. And those are my thoughts and my opinions and also my beliefs on it as well. So astral projection is is a pretty interesting phenomenon. It has been practiced for millennia, not even centuries, but so much longer. It is written in the ancient scriptures, such as the Vedas and even the Taoist scriptures as well in ancient China. So it's nothing new. It's really fascinating. And I wish, I wish I could do it. Yeah, me too. What do you think about, because I'm assuming your research has covered this. What do you think about people doing DMT and meeting machine elves or meeting these otherworldly? Because I, I've never done I don't have the right uh, mental capacities to take hallucinogens. So I've never done pure hallucinogens. Um, I've actually been sober for three years. So I don't partake or imbibe in any sort of narcotic or alcohol or whatever works for me. I appreciate it doesn't work for like most of my country. But I sat in the room with one of my friends whilst he took DMT once and he broke through and he came to after about 10 minutes and he said that he was somewhere that was timeless and it was slipping away from him as he was trying to relay what he'd seen. But there was this sort of Egyptian goddess that he was speaking to and there were sphinxes and there were all these like geometric patterns and such. Have you looked into people taking um, a psychedelic as strong as DMT and interacting with potential otherworldly entities. Funny enough, I have not done extensive research on this. However, there is one very famous person that also has a spiritual type background that took drugs, and that was Terrence McKenna. And he said, look, if you take these shrooms, or I don't, I don't even know what he took, to be honest with you, but you're able to kind of break this barrier and kind of get more of a spiritual type of enlightenment. You're able to interact with entities at times, but then you have others, right, that take other types of drugs or attempt to have DMT experiences and they're very negative experiences. You're also with, with that mindset, you're also able to create your own realities, right? Like with any drug, for example, marijuana, you, you, you have these weird experiences, but you're aware that it's actually all from your mind. There's nothing really influencing you to have whatever experience you're having. I have never taken hallucinogenics. So I, I can't talk from experience and I can't talk from research because I haven't done extensive, extensive research on it, but it is something that it, that is interesting. And for instance, Buddhists, um, and those that practice very deep meditations are able to actually release DMT from their brain through a meditative state, not using any type of psychedelic drugs and experience their own spiritual aspects of it as well. Have it be achieving enlightenment, spiritual enlightenment, which to um, Buddhists and even Hindus, it's where you fully detach from the body, from the environment, and you ascend into a higher realm, more like a, like a celestial realm, for instance. And you're in this realm of samsara that we're in here now, which includes suffering, um, death, illness, birth, and you keep coming back. That is the, that is their belief. 
So when we are looking at hallucinogenics, it just depends on the group that you're in. Some banish it. They're like, well, if if you're going to have an experience, if you want to be in communication with entities or whatever else, you have to do it naturally. You have to do it from a, a deep meditative state, also known as a somatic state. And then you have others that say, no, dude, take the easy route, take drugs, and and hopefully it'll be fine. Mm-hmm. So it's it's that battle that you have to do with yourself to know which one you want to do. There has been extensive research done by scientists on how hallucinogenics affect the brain and also experiences. I have literally just read the cover and I have not read the books on it. But it is a fascinating um, conversation to have and one that I definitely will be researching in the future. Yeah, because I love reading stuff like that. And I do wonder, I do wonder sometimes, especially when people speak of seeing the machine elves in this, I don't know, fifth or fourth dimension, this different altered state of reality. I do wonder how much is the brain. But see, I conflate it a little bit with what you're talking about earlier with the extra dimensions and such, I went through a big phase of reading Michio Kaku, hyperspace, like quantum physics, this type of thing. And when talking about different dimensions, I went through, it wasn't a phase, I went through several months of having quite bad sleep paralysis and feeling things that weren't there. And when you're in that vulnerable state and you're feeling things like the mattress depress as as like pressure is pushing it as if something is getting into the bed next to you i think it's very hard to keep to the nuts and bolts as you say i wonder sometimes if experiences like that could be explained away by the existence of other dimensions sort of like sandwiched on top of ours and this interaction going on that's my little fan theory about basically i think when i had my sleep paralysis uh, stalker I think there was something a bit interdimensional going on because it feels very, it's a bit eye roll worthy to, to say to people and I understand how it sounds, but when you felt it and when you felt like things touch you and like the, the bed and the bed covers move, et cetera, it's a different experience altogether, you know? It's very scary. I have done um, research on sleep paralysis. There usually is a connection with shadow people and we will get into that. I've also had only one experience with sleep paralysis it is the most terrifying thing that anyone can experience, especially the first time that it happens to you because you're sleeping and you, you, sometimes it's like, you're kind of like in a half state, you're a half asleep, half awake. And then all of a sudden you're paralyzed. You can't move your fingers, your arms. You can't scream because obviously you're in fear that you can't move. All you can move is your eyes. When I had my experience, it was my senior year in high school. I knew nothing about sleep paralysis. I knew nothing about shadow people. So I wasn't influenced in any way by the media to have this experience. And at this time I was staying at my um, dad's place. My parents uh, were divorced and um, it was one night and this entity, I don't even know what it was. This shadowy blob comes through the door and I, and I see it from like laying on my back. I look down and I can just like see this shadowy blob there, is not, there was nothing in my room at that time that could have casted a shadow like that, especially one that moved and that looked really big. I was paralyzed. I wasn't able to move or speak or anything. And I was obviously panicking. And then this is the part of the story that I've actually never told. This is, I usually keep this very secret, but I'll tell it to you, is this entity um, kind of like walked up. 
I wasn't able to see it at this point when it was like kind of next to me. It whispered something in my ear. I don't know what that was. I don't know what it, I can't remember what it said, but I felt like this warm air coming through my ear. Obviously the next morning I said, Hey, did anyone come into my room last night? Everyone's like, what are you talking about? Of course not. Why would we? And after that, that experience just kind of brushed away. I, I never, I never thought back to it um, until doing the research on sleep paralysis and shadow people, because I'm thinking, wait a second, it's actually, this looks kind of familiar. I think I had this experience and a really good friend of mine, uh, my, a really good childhood friend of mine, not only did she encounter sleep paralysis, she encountered shadow people. What are shadow people? There are these kind of shadowy entities that come in. The most famous ones are the hat man and the old hag, and also like just weird creatures as well. They create this sleep paralysis on the entities sleeping on the bed, and they just kind of look over them sometimes. But people that have extensive interactions with shadow people, very specifically the old hag and the hat man, deal with depression, anxiety, eating disorders, um, things like this. My friend encountered this old woman in the corner of her bedroom every single night for years. She suffered from depression, anxiety, incredible eating disorders. Like her life was a mess and, and, and she had, um, a very good background. So there was no real reason for her to have these really treacherous things, um, happen to her mentally and physically. And she came from a, um, two half background. Her father, it was a, um, neurosurgeon. So like science doesn't believe in anything spiritual. Her mother, on the other hand, was more of a spiritualist and, uh, she was raised to be an Orthodox Jew. So you have just all of this craziness in her, in her, in her home. And the story goes, and I was able to get the story from her mother and from my mother as well, because they're also friends. And her mother had actually um, contacted a woman to attempt to cleanse my friend. Uh, because again, she has this spiritualist background that she thinks that through saging, through singing bowls, things like this, it could possibly help her daughter. So they, they her, the mother and the girl go into this, speak to this woman. And the woman says, okay, I want you to come into my house. My friend was like, no, I don't want to. And this girl uh, at the time, she's like 14, 13, 14, I believe. She wasn't scared of strangers. This wasn't a thing for her. And she never said no when invited into a person's house, especially she's Latin American, just like myself. And uh, we have this cultural thing that if someone invites you in, you're always going to come in and you're always going to make sure to bring snacks with you, right? And it's like an invitation saying, thank you for inviting me to your home. Here's some food. That's just how it plays out. So she was like, no, I, I don't want to enter. And the woman, I'm going to call her a witch. I don't know what her title is, but just to make it simple, the witch was like, okay, I'll do the ceremony outside of my home. We'll make it work. She plays singing bowls around her, also known as home bowls. And my friend just starts screaming. She's like, stop it. Stop it. It hurts so much. What are you doing? She passes out from the pain. She wakes up a little, uh, a little while afterwards. And she's like, literally what happened? Like what's going on here? And the woman stated, the witch stated, um, there was an entity attached to you, kiddo, um, but you should be fine now. 
when I had attempted to speak to my friend, I have lost contact with her um, these years later. But at that time, when I had heard the story, I asked her like, Hey, are you okay? Like what happened? She's like, nothing, absolutely nothing. I don't believe any of that happened. I was never, I was never, I never had an encounter with an old woman in my, in my uh, house. I don't know what you're talking about, Christina. And I said, you've been telling me for years and now you're denying it. And this goes to show that from my experience and from my friend's experience and a few others, people that have interactions with shadow people or sleep paralysis, they brush it off. Um, and, and it's, it's a more common thing than people realize. And this has been going on since biblical times before then people also had interactions with the incubus and the succubus. It, it is, they are these demons that sit on your chest at night. They paralyze you and they sometimes take your essence and, or they impregnate you unless you're a man, then they take, um, your DNA. That also sounds like alien abductions. So all of these things are connected with alien abductions. Just get into a little bit more detail. I don't want to leave people like, what are you talking about? There are stories of people that have encounters where they're in, they're in a, they're in a type of paralysis. They feel something on their chest and then they have their eggs taken out or their sperm removed, or sometimes the, the women get pregnant and they're like, I, I'm there's no way that's not possible. And then a few months later, that fetus is removed with no explanation. It's very, very weird. It sounds like the incubus and succubus, which sounds like the shadow people. And in some respects, they could, they could all be completely different entities. We don't know that. Or they could all be the same with a different label and they're all interconnected. We don't know, but these are questions that we need to have. And it's very terrifying for when this, these things happen to you and you have no idea what's going on, but knowledge is power. If you know the knowledge, if you have the knowledge, you're able to rationalize it a little bit more. Have you, hmm. so would you say, do you think that shadow people are possibly extraterrestrial? It could be, or they could also be interdimensional, multidimensional, where they're able to exist in our realm and another. Another thing that sounds very similar to shadow people are the jinn, which is the um, Muslim type of demons. They're like these type of smoke entities. And the uh, Quran goes into detail on these jinn. They have their own realm. They have families. They have kids. They live their lives. But sometimes they can linger in our realm in sewages, bathrooms, trash cans, the, the, the more like dark places um, or gross places. And then from there, they're able to interact in some respects with people in this dimension. Here, you're looking at different dimensions. This is mentioned in their religion, in, in Islam. So could they be, could they be extraterrestrials? They could be. There have been stories of people stating that I was... I was encountered by an extraterrestrial, a very high being of some kind, but it was kind of smoky. You were, it was slightly trans, translucent. Was it an interdimensional? Could have been. We don't know. It are, it's believed by quantum mechanics now that there are multiple dimensions, even to the 11th dimension, which 10, 20 years ago, that wasn't even a thing. Mm. So when we're looking at shadow people, could they be interdimensionals? Could they be multidimensionals? Could they be extraterrestrials? Yes, to all of them. We don't know. 
funny. I was just literally a few days ago, I was just having a conversation with one of my friends who she grew up in, she spent most of her, like the start of her life in Malaysia and grew up. I think, I think the country she grew up in was under Islamic state even back then. So she was telling me all about the jinn and how superstitious the people from her island in Malaysia are. And I think recently someone a few years ago, a child went missing and then was found and there was an investigation and like she she was basically saying to me that most of most of the people in Malaysia would look at that and be like, oh yes, that was a jinn. That was like a person, a, a an entity of the woods that took the child it's, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that have you have you looked extensively into different world religion mythos folklore etc um to connect the dots of you know say you have some ancient like mesopotamian or sumerian texts from thousands of years ago talking of what is it the 10th planet um or planet yeah x planet x mm. Have you, have you extensively looked into that kind of stuff? Because I love that topic. When it comes to religion and mythology, actually when in university, I attempted to get a degree in religious studies because I'm so fascinated with it. However, my university did not offer that as a degree. So I just took one course. And when you're looking at religion, you're also looking at all the myths and legends attached to those stories that really attempt to explain away things, crazy things that happen and or experiences that our ancestors have had over the centuries. The stories have become more convoluted, but the foundation of the stories are the same. Have it be a moral lesson or have it be an actual encounter with weird entities or cryptids as well. So I have not personally looked into Mesopotamia and Sumer, but I do extensive research on the more um, Eastern religions and myths, have it be China and India, due to the fact of not only do I find it fascinating, but I do have a Buddhist background. I started going to the temple, a Buddhist temple when I was 16, 15 or 16. So um, from there, I've always found a fascination in it. But what's really interesting, looking at these Eastern type of religions, and have it even be Catholicism and the um, Judaism and even Islam. They talk about angels, demons, ghosts, hungry ghosts. We'll get into that. And uh, a bunch of other things that sometimes the higher ups have it be rishis in India or the monks in Buddhism or the priests in Catholicism. They're able to see these entities that your average person can't see and it's believed because their third eye is open but what's crazy about that is that they've been telling these stories for millennia and even to this day you're still going to encounter people that state yeah i see demons i see ghosts i see hungry ghosts i see angels and all these types of things hungry ghosts to be a little bit more specific it is believed in the Buddhist and Hindu religions, um, and the Hindus would call it the Prata, that it is this person that had just died, but it was still so attached to the physical world. Have it be money, have it be drugs, have it be sexual interactions, have it even be attached to a family member that maybe killed you and you never forgave them, for instance. When you have these unfulfilled desires, have it be like, for example, revenge, or have it be these desires of having money or having food extensively like gluttony, right? 
they are not able to pass over. You hear so many stories of um, mediums very specifically stating, oh, I see this entity and I showed him the light and he went through the light and he never came back, for instance, right? With these hungry ghosts, they see that tunnel of light, allegedly, this is how the scriptures go, but they do not want to enter it because they fear of losing stuff in this physical realm, even though they don't have a physical body anymore. They're just a ghost. And it is depicted by the um, the scriptures, have it be in Japan, China, Tibet, and parts of India. They are depicted not as like cute little ghosts like Casper that we see or like full-blown apparitions with like a nice ballground gown dress. They're depicted as these very skinny, sickly looking people that have these protruding stomachs um, because they are starving, but they're not able to eat. Anything that enters their mouth turns into fire. This was one scripture in particular in one uh, in uh, Buddhism where Shakyamuni Buddha attempted, had so much compassion that he encountered this entity, this hungry ghost, and attempted to feed it, but it couldn't eat. It would it would just diminish because it's not it's ne- never never able to extinguish its desire the scripture goes into more detail on that but it's a really terrifying thing to turn into something like that and also have it be interactions with demons that is consistent across all scriptures across the world across all religions all myths you're going to come across a story of a demon you're going to come come across a story of a giant or a goblin of some kind that are usually mischievous in every single culture that I've looked into, my favorite one um, being the Pukwaji. Why? Because it's just the cutest name on the freaking planet, but they are evil. When we look at religions and myths, there seems to be a nugget of truth in them. It's just kind of deciphering what that piece of truth is. But a lot of cryptid researchers and a lot of paranormal researchers specifically, they do look at myths to kind of give them a groundwork of what they need to look for and maybe the characteristics of those entities so that they know how to continue their investigations. Have you looked into reptilian symbolism throughout various cultures all around the world there seems to be there seems to be in a lot of stories not just biblical snakes lizard people i think um i think even in the bible the punishment that the snake got after convincing eve to bite the apple was it had to sliver on its belly for the rest of the time which implies that it had limbs before that it was losing its limbs and it had to be limbless and sliver around which you know would insinuate maybe more of a hominoid appearance. What, what do you think about? What do you think about that? I love me a little lizard people story. When it comes to that story in a particular, a really interesting um, example of this, and it's actually mentioned by Sadhguru, who is kind of like the head of Hinduism at the moment. But he had mentioned, because he's been asked the story so many times about the story of Adam and Eve and the snake. Is it an alien? Is it is it really malevolent? Like what's going on with this story? And he made mention that what if it was just, you know, what if Eve just really just wanted to eat an apple? What if she wasn't just, she, she wasn't compelled by anything. She's just like, Hey, I'm kind of hungry. I want to eat it for instance. But 
and he was joking there in a sense because the the story has a more moral to it right Mm -hmm. it has morale where because eve ate the apple humans were damned literally to have to wear clothes they they lost in a sense their enlightenment their their spiritual mentality to where now they had to eat they had to clothe they had to shelter themselves things like this was a reptilian involved in that it is so difficult to say there are so many conspiracy theorists stating yeah obviously can you not see the resemblance there (laughs) and then you have others that are like are you literally out of your mind there there is nothing to see here from the research that I've done you really have two camps and because that story is so limited it is difficult to say on that one in particular. And if anything, let's say it was a reptilian, why the heck would they care about us humans? What would be the purpose to be like, I'm going to damn you. Yeah. Yeah. You, because, because I feel like it for instance. And again, I'm, I'm being a little facetious here, but it is, it, it, it makes us as humans feel this importance that these other entities really want to interact with us, want to hurt us or want to help us. But it seems that from witnesses and experiencers, a lot of them, a lot of these extraterrestrials allegedly are just bystanders. They're just watching and they're just kind of seeing how it pans out. And then you have a few that are more interactive with the human race allegedly really want to emphasize that but for the most part we're kind of off limits in in a sense or could we possibly be in a type of quarantine our planets where we're yeah we're not seeing ufos flying over all the time it's not necessarily public knowledge we're not seeing um reptilians walking through the mall right with us uh is is it because we're not ready. Like for instance, in Star Trek, where you have to have that first moment of contact, are we in a type of quarantine where extraterrestrials simply are not able to interact with us? Or are we so incredibly insignificant that these entities don't care? We can't even manage ourselves at the moment ever really. These are the questions that uh, I have. I think it's that one. I think that we haven't got our shit together, so we're not really allowed to interact, but we're also not really that bothered with. I also do think that a lot of UFOs, if they are from other planets, uh, I think a lot of them, this is very human of me, I admit. I think a lot of it would be tourism and sightseeing. Wouldn't you, if you had crafts to, and you're able to fly across the galaxy to, because uh, Earth has a very vast ecosystem. It has a very good, especially if you look at the other planets in our solar system, our ecosystem is amazing. And we have such a vast array of different environments. I'd want to sightsee that, you know, if I had a craft capable of that. I was just wondering, as you were talking, actually, I'm coming to my own conclusions now. I wonder if there's so much reptilian and snake symbolism in different folklores around the world, because I think there's something in our DNA that makes us innately a bit fearful of snakes, you know? So I'm wondering if it's just subconsciously putting that into stories, you know, don't trust snakes, snakes are the bad guys or whatever. Didn't cats, this is my age, sorry, this is my ADHD coming through now. Didn't cats, like, don't cats hiss to mimic snakes because we're scared of them? Have you heard heard that? I have not heard that theory, but looking at at snakes, um, for instance, when it comes to cultures across the globe, you're right. They're depicted as of one of two ways, either terrifying that you should be scared of them because for centuries they have 
harbored the human population, right? If you step on it by accident, it bites you, you die. There's no medicine at the time, right? Um, like antibiotics and things like this. So there has always been a fear factor, but then you have some such as in Hinduism, where you have Vishnu surrounded by a multi-head serpent and also with Shiva as well. And it, 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 it shows a sign of power. It's a sign of um, deityship. So I think it kind of depends, but then you also have depictions of the snakes um, going around each other, resembling DNA and science, right? Like that's the kind of like the new hospital logo. And that in a case is more, it's, it's just a a happier symbol, I guess, in a sense, right? We're not seeing it as reptilians. Mm. No, we're, we're seeing it as DNA, but then you could go into the question. Are reptilians part of our DNA? I have no idea. This is where this is where all the conspiracy theorists uh, come in and they, they can tell you all the answers on things that, that, that they believe. But I am looking at the facts, at the data, at things that are more tangible. Um, and, and I really do restrict to the best of my ability sharing my opinions because they're just opinions and they're going to change tomorrow the more research that I do. So I really like to keep it the best facts that I can, that can I, that can I, that I can also remember as well. But with snakes, it's just, it's just difficult. I, I'm not sure because it's really just theoretical and not even that really. I wonder. This is probably a theory I read somewhere, but I also think that perhaps our, because uh, our vision for for mammals, our vision is incredible. Most mammals don't have vision as good as ours, besides I don't know hawks or birds of prey. Um, I think there's a theory that our vision evolved to be so good to be able to look out for snakes in long grass or in trees or whatnot. I'm very sure I've read that theory somewhere. So maybe it's just this, this, I don't know, millennia of fearing snakes. And then we've subconsciously put that fear of snakes into our stories. It's very as, possible. As a metaphor. Hmm. No, I'm that, talking, that I'm talking myself out of believing in reptilian. <laughs> And, and it's, it's through having these conversations and also hearing your own thoughts along with hearing other people's thoughts that it, it shifts the way that you see things. It changes your perspective. And that's why having these conversations are so important because it molds the way that we will think in the future. And that's a big reason to why I don't share my opinions because talking to you, my thoughts have changed since then, Mm. right? Since, since this morning, for instance. So that's why movies, podcasts, books, they're so important to be, to be read, to be listened to, to be seen, because it's going to change our worldview altogether. What do you think about the theory that through media, various forms of it, film, TV, whatever, we are being drip fed, drip, drip, drip fed, drip fed uh, images of extraterrestrials potentially for maybe some sort of disclosure or I think this is a theory that I came up with you know the the stereotypical gray depiction of an alien I my fan theory is is that started being drip fed throughout media so that if one was to ever encounter a gray alien they wouldn't just you wouldn't just have a heart attack and die because you've seen that image at probably hundreds of times by now throughout tv or media what, what do you think about the the media's play into extraterrestrials 
At this point in time, really after Project Blue Book closed in 1969, we began seeing an extensive push in UFO movies, books, and um, storytelling as well, how to be like, you know, to the radio and stuff. And I think at this point in time with our generation, it's so, you just shrug your shoulders if you hear extraterrestrials. Do you believe in extraterrestrials? Yeah, obviously. I mean, like science backs it up. I literally grew up on Invader Zim and now every single TV show talks about aliens in some episode. We also have the movie, literally Aliens. Great movie, by the way. And so I think that since really the 70s onward, we've been just seeing more media on aliens. Obviously, they were classified as sci-fi, right? As entertainment, sometimes even as, as, as scary as well. For example, Alien at the time was terrifying, to be honest with you. Now you're kind of, you laugh at it and the, all the effects. But it seems that as the time has progressed, we are seeing more. Could it be a drip feed? Possibly. And I think that if that were the case with these reports that we are getting from the government, have it be last year, this year, and the one that we should be getting uh, really by October 31st, November 1st, if we didn't have that television knowledge, that book knowledge, it would be a little bit, it'd be a harder pill to swallow. Now with our generation being exposed to it since birth, really, it's not even a question. Can you, you mentioned Project Blue Book, just for any of my audience who are unaware of what that is, can you give a little brief synopsis? I'm just going to pour myself some orange juice. Project Blue Book was a military funded project run by J. Allen Hynek and another military official that we do not actually know his name. It has not been disclosed, but he was a professor of astronomy. That was his background. He did not believe in extraterrestrials. He didn't believe in any of that. In the early 50s, they created this project and they call in J. Allen Hynek and they're like, hey, we want you to be the person, the the main man for this project. Anyone that calls about a UFO, you're going to say, wasn't a UFO. It was swamp gas. It was a owl on top of a tree. You're really going to, to not say the term alien ever. Okay. You got it. All right. Good. All right. Now go do your job. So Jalen Hynek and his partner traveled the United States, um, going to people that have recorded seeing UFO sightings, possibly even extraterrestrials as well. There's some pretty extensive wild stories that he had to cover and he had to document everything afterward. And he had to send it back to the military to look it over. This lasted a good few years. It ended up um, closing in 1969. The project ended. Allegedly, they weren't. They didn't have enough funding. They they didn't see the significance of it. But people think that Project Blue Book. Those that aren't familiar with the topic, I think it was like this really great thing talking about UFOs. Super awesome. No, that's not the case. They were trying to brush it off to keep the American public happy, satisfied, and not caring about this, thinking that everything can very easily be explained away. And it was created kind of really after Roswell in 1947, where you had this huge craft crash into New Mexico. The newspaper says it was aliens. We got a military testament. It was aliens. The very next day, that newspaper was scrubbed. No, it wasn't aliens. It was actually a weather balloon. A few years later, 
actually it wasn't a weather balloon. It was a very secret project, very, very secret project. And we couldn't tell you at that moment. And then it got scrubbed again. So it was because of that moment of the United States kind of getting their first publicly known UFO crash. They were able to kind of like feel out what was going on, how to handle it. They created Project Blue Book to literally just sweep everything under the rug. It was canceled. It's been believed that Project Blue Book never really ended and that there was another project that happened soon afterward. These are just alleged. There isn't really any proof to my knowledge on that, but it is something that not just the United States government, but governments globally have been interested in. And that is the UFO conversation. What do you think happened with Roswell? Because I have a little fan theory about Roswell. What we were saying way earlier in the podcast about uh, hotspots. Well, New Mexico was the area where they were doing atomic bomb testing, where they were splitting the atom, chaos, etc. We've all seen the I have become death destroyer of worlds. I'm sure we're all very aware and have seen that. I think when we split the atom, if you know up to 11 dimensions do exist we might have done damage to different dimensions i think it would have naturally drawn the curiosity of other entities who might be interacting with our dimension or or our third dimensional i think i don't know i feel like when we learned to split the atom it might have sent a warning sign to other civilizations who might be out, out there like hey these guys have just learned how to create these incredibly destructive weapons maybe there should be like a little bit of i i don't know maybe it's just curiosity or, or whatever um so i think that's kind of what happened there and then maybe something went wrong with their the the magnetics in their compass and the craft crashed that's my little fan theory what do you think happened at roswell uh i'll, I'll make this very brief but yeah. dealing with nuclear nuclear weapons and i always say it incorrectly but nuclear weapons the times that it has been attemptedly tested by the United States and Russia documented, these missiles have been deactivated and by, by an extraterrestrial entity of some kind. And then it comes back down and people are like, what just happened? And they run the test again. It happens again. It happened in California. It's documented. It happened in Maelstrom, Montana. Uh, you can talk to Robert Salas, who is still alive, and he tells a story. Happened to him. Happened in Russia. And the Russian one is kind of funny, and I'm just going to very briefly say it. They were running, ta- no, they, they were a few military officials in a nuclear silo. I think it was in the 1980s. I'm pretty sure around that time. And all of a sudden, all of the nuke warnings went up. It was on. They were ready to launch. Obviously, everyone in the silo was freaking panicking because the only way they were able to activate those missiles was two separate locations in Russia. How to press it at the exact same time for these missiles to launch. No one was authorized to do that. And again, it has to be synchronized. Mm. Well, these missiles are ready to launch. There was a panic. It was a code red. And then it all shut down. There was no explanation for it because to do the hard wiring for that is incredibly, incredibly difficult and takes extensive amount of time. At that moment, there was a um, UFO craft just outside of one of the silos. And that's just one story of... um, 
allegedly entities dealing with nuclear weapons, either turning them on or turning them off. Once again, it was in Vandenberg, California, Maelstrom, Montana. There are a few others, but those two are the most documented of nuclear weapon, UFO, deactivating it. People are like WTF and uh, they try it again. It happens again. So when we're looking at Roswell, where and that's in the White Sands in New Mexico, where they were running these types of tests for the first time, could it have caught attention from these extraterrestrials? That is very possible. And ever since then, they're like, we're going to take make sure that literally all of your weapons are on the DL. You're not going to destroy this planet. It's way too beautiful. Thank you very much. So Roswell is, is a very interesting case. Um, did it happen? There's a lot more documentation on it now more than ever. It is believed that more should be coming uh, through the pipeline. Is that true? Don't know, but it does keep my hopes up. That is for sure. Well, unfortunately, I could, I could listen to you talk about this stuff for hours, but unfortunately we are out of time for today. Thank you so much for coming onto my channel. It's been, I love this type of conversation. So I hope that you will come back on again to discuss more of the stuff. Where can people find you, your socials? Oh, thank you so much. You can find me on my website at strangeparadigms.com. There you can find literally all of my social media, um, all of my shows as well, along with Twitter, which is eyes underscore on the skies. That's like the platform where I'm the most active, but I also have Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Discord, literally everything. I have everything. And, um, but yeah, the best place to find me would be on my website at strangeparadigms.com. Okay, great. And for everyone else, I hope you remember to like, comment, subscribe. Let me know what you thought of this episode. Follow us on Spotify and iTunes, and I will see you guys all next time. Bye.